0: Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We're in a series on the Gospel of John titled Witness to the Light. And following the sermon, you'll hear the weekly Q&A. John chapter 3 is where we are. We're in a study in the book of John. And uh, we are starting John three today. Um, as a uh, as a preacher, there are certain kinds of passages uh, that uh, that are passages kind of fall into a couple different categories. One is passages that are kind of hard to understand, but in the end, easy to implement right? Uh, And passages that are pretty easy to understand, but set a high bar and are hard to actually live out. And then there are passages that are both hard to understand and hard to implement. And that's what we have here this evening. So uh, John 3, 1 through 12 is what we're gonna look at. John 3 is uh, one of my favorite kinds of passages in the sense that, it is a really familiar passage. It's one of the most famous passages in the New Testament. Perhaps you've heard of John 3.16. That comes from John 3. That's kind of the reference there. Uh, and so it's very familiar to us. And yet uh, it challenges us at our what I would call our most thoughtless assumptions. Okay, thoughtless assumptions, meaning um, that there is a way in which we kind of go through the world, go through our lives. And I would say uh, maybe especially as kind of Seattle urbanites, uh, there is a way in which we live in the world that this passage will challenge Right, so many of us, as I look out at this room and uh, the morning service as well, are very capable, very smart, very accomplished, very well educated. Uh, We got entrepreneurs and business owners and lawyers and doctors. We got uh, we got Ivy Leaguers all over the room here. We have very accomplished people here in our church and in our city. And, and there is a certain mindset that goes along with that that says, if there is a challenge, I will overcome it. If there is an obstacle, I will get over it. If there is an opportunity to win, I will win it. Right. And so no matter what is in front of us, it's something we just want or it's an obstacle we face. There is an internal will that causes us to kind of pull on all the levers of power we might have uh, to be able to overcome that thing. Right. Right. And it's just kind of the way we, we deal with the world. And it's not a bad thing. But Jesus is going to challenge this guy named Nicodemus, who is very much like that, um, to rethink the way he approaches the world altogether. And, and it's wonderfully fabulous to watch happen. So... I want to zoom out for just a quick second to to show you what John's doing, what we're going to be looking at over the next five weeks. Okay, so Jesus is going to interact with this guy, Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, who's a very powerful religious figure uh, here in Jerusalem. Uh, And that's going to take up most of chapter three. And then chapter four, Jesus is going to have another very famous interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. Okay, the woman at the well narrative is very well known. And John puts them next to each other to, again, just similar to the way he did with the wedding at Cana and Jesus in the temple, making the whip, whipping fools and driving people out. That he is putting them next to each other in order to be able to draw our eyes to the ways in which Jesus interacts with both the powerful and the outcast. Okay, so this couldn't be more obvious of a juxtaposition that John shows us here. We've got a man in Nicodemus juxtaposed with a woman who is at the well, uh, a Jew versus a Samaritan, Orthodox versus what would be considered a heretic, um, a religious and cultural leader in Nicodemus. And a very real social outcast uh, in the woman at the well. And so um, what's going to get lost here is we're going to have to do these stories over the course of several weeks. And so I want to remind us to kind of zoom out. I'm going to do that for us a couple times to see the ways in which Jesus interacts with them differently. And the ways in which he interacts with them in the same way, which I think is just as interesting for us to see and just as uh, informative for us. So we're going to do that over the next couple of weeks. But this evening, we are going to do John chapter 3. So I'm going to teach through the passage and then we'll zoom out and and, kind of look at some observations as to what John and Jesus are doing here. So John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. right? So Nicodemus says he's a Pharisee. The Pharisees are kind of known to be the most serious of all the Jewish Jewish sects, S-E-C-T-S. Um, and, uh, and, and so they take their faith very serious. These are the guys that look at the 613 laws in the Old Testament and go, not enough, right? We need thousands more laws. And so they literally added more and more rules and regulations and specificity to the laws of the Old Testament and were very, serious about their faith, right? So this guy, in particular, Nicodemus, is a member of the Sanhedrin, right? So that's the ruling class of the day. So not only is he a Jew, but he is a Pharisee, which means he knows his Bible really well, knows his theology really well, is really holy and cares a lot about that. And he is a member of the Sanhedrin, which means he is politically powerful. He is a major influencer. He is ambitious and capable right? So for context sake, this guy would fit in really well at Amazon, right? Like he wants to kill everyone and beat everything. That's who this guy is, right? Like he would have all of the leadership principles memorized and would be applying them perfectly and have 12 more. (laughs) That's who this guy is. Okay. So he's, he's smarter than us, he's more ambitious than us, he's more accomplished than us, and I know most of you, he's holier than you, right? Like, so he is, this guy is the real deal. So this ruler of the Jews, who takes his faith very seriously, knows his Bible really well, risks a lot... Right? That's why he comes to Jesus at night. He's risking his reputation. Jesus has already driven people out of the temple. He's already making enemies with the Pharisees. He's already gaining a reputation in Jerusalem. So this guy Nicodemus is risking his reputation with the rest of the Sanhedrin to come to Jesus, and this is why he does it at night. So he risks all of that to come to Jesus to declare some belief that because of the signs Jesus has done, that he believes Jesus is a teacher sent from God. Now, this uh, introduction would make us think that this interaction is going to go pretty well. And Jesus is going to be really glad to have a friend on the Sanhedrin. But before we see what Jesus' reaction actually is, I want us to see the first of what will be three different word plays that John does. John's known of all the gospel writers for the most like kind of poetic use of words and and word play. We're going to see three examples of that just in this passage uh, this evening. So the first one is this. If you remember last week, and I know you do, um, we talked about the end of chapter two. So go in your Bible to the end of chapter two, verses 23 to 25. After Jesus cleansed the temple, John gives this, this little statement about Jesus, it says, "Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man. Now, that word for man, in the Greek is anthropos. It's the normal, uh, most common way in the Greek that they, the writers will talk about man or mankind, anthropos. But um, so I want to replace the word man with the word anthropos, just to draw out what John's doing here, right? So these, and and remember this: when John writes this, he's not coming to the end of chapter two and then starting chapter three. That's something a French guy did hundreds and hundreds of years later, right? This is just one narrative, one scroll. And so hear it the way John wrote it. Jesus needed no one to bear witness about Anthropos, for he himself knew what was in Anthropos. Now there was an Anthropos of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Okay, so, so John's given us a little clue as to where this story might be going, Right? He just said, Jesus knows what's in an Anthropos, so he didn't entrust himself to an Anthropos because basically Anthroposes, Anthropoi, uh, cannot be trusted. Now, an Anthropos named Nicodemus came to talk to Jesus. That would be a clue to us that Jesus doesn't exactly trust this guy. So, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, declares some amount of faith, some kind of faith. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is a device that John will use all the time. Every time Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, that means listen up, pay attention. This is important. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? So Nicodemus, at great risk to himself, sneaks in the night to go see Jesus, knocks on the door of wherever Jesus is staying, comes in, sits down with Jesus and goes, Jesus, Rabbi, we know, we, Nicodemus is representative of some group of people who all believe this thing about Jesus. We know that you're a teacher come from God because no one could do the signs that you do unless they were sent from God. Jesus hears Nicodemus say that and goes, Truly, truly, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And Nicodemus goes, "Uh, come again? (laughs) Like what? What are you talking about? Like this is a complete left turn. This is a non sequitur. This is Jesus totally flipping the conversation on its head, answering a question that was not asked with a statement that Nicodemus, we will see in a moment, does not understand, even a little bit, what's Jesus doing here? He, this, this really important and, uh, and, and smart and capable and powerful person sneaks in the night to come see Jesus, declares faith, and Jesus' response is a non sequitur, this vague theological metaphor about being born again. Besides the fact that what Jesus just said, if Nicodemus was able to even process in the moment, was that he is, Nicodemus is basically both blind and dead. Because there's no way that Nicodemus could assume that he was born again since he has no idea what being born again means. And none of this makes sense to him, as we'll see in a moment. Jesus just said, you need to be reborn. You need to be born again, which implies that you are in some real sense dead, or else you're not even able to see the kingdom of God, which of course Nicodemus would assume he understands completely. What's he doing? Jesus challenging Nicodemus, begins from the, from the get-go, from his very first words to challenge this guy, this smart, accomplished, powerful, holy leader. Nicodemus responds, verse 4. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, Here's the second word play that John uses in this section. If you look back up into verse 3, in your Bible where it says born again, there ought to be a little notation in my Bible, uh, it's a one. Okay, do you see that in your Bible or on your app? Okay, it probably says in your footnotes that it could, be, could mean either born again or born from above. Jesus chooses a word that, that means both of those things at the very same time. So what what a person who is going to be generous to Jesus in conversation might assume is that Jesus means that there is some sort of birth that is from above, which, you know, obviously would mean in this context something spiritual, something heavenly, something from God, that there is a kind of rebirth from above that Jesus is talking about here. But Nicodemus takes a different tack, doesn't he? In fact, he assumes the most ridiculous version of what Jesus says and says, well, how can a man be born when he is old? Is he supposed to climb back inside of his mother's womb? Okay, so what's Nicodemus doing here? He is using a very common rhetorical device, which is to say, take something that your opponent says, uh, extrapolate the most ridiculous version of it, and then attack that version. It's basically what Twitter is okay? So, so Nicodemus is, is entering the fight, right? Jesus has challenged him, and Nicodemus, instead of desiring to, to learn and grow and understand what Jesus is saying, is taking the most ridiculous version of what Jesus is saying and then attacking that, right? I was at, uh, I was at the store yesterday at uh, at World Market, which is basically just some sort of international bazaar. I mean, there's just stuff everywhere, and I was there with all of my kids, and it's just just begging to be touched. Everything in the place is begging to be touched, and I told one of my kids, don't touch anything. Just don't touch anything, because they had, at that point, touched everything. And so I said, okay, don't touch anything, and he goes, okay, and he starts to take off his clothes, and he goes, you said don't touch anything? And, and so, you know, there's these moments when the Lord uses um, the, the jokes of your children to drive you to the brink of insanity <laughs> to then teach you things about yourself. This is basically what Nicodemus is doing here to Jesus. So what does Jesus say? He doesn't clarify. In fact, he doubles down. Verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Now, uh, commentators uh, differ and disagree, and there's a lot of different things that this might mean. Some of them think the water and the spirit means your physical birth and then also a spiritual birth. Some of them think it means baptism, that you're born, kind of reborn in the water, and it's also a spiritual rebirth. Um, Others think it's a reference to Ezekiel 36, right? I think that's too obvious. Um, And so there's a lot of different ways that this could go, Um, but what's clear is Jesus' intention here. What The point he is trying to make here is that there's something that has to happen to you that is different than what is the, the kind of the normal process of life in the flesh, right? So he goes, listen, the flesh is the flesh, the spirit's the spirit, they're different. And to be born of the flesh And the Spirit is a unique work of God. So there's probably allusions here to cleansing. That's usually what water is an allusion to. uh, Cleansing and then Spirit being indwelling and a a filling of the Spirit. There's all kinds of things that Jesus is saying here. But the point is this. Jesus is saying you can't flesh your way into the kingdom of God. You, You get what I mean by that? You can't flesh your way into the kingdom of God, meaning you can't think your way, earn your way, will your way, discipline your way, succeed your way, be born into or inherit the kingdom of God. Nothing that comes from this world will allow you to see or enter the kingdom of God. It's different. It's spiritual. It's a completely different reality. So, Again, the the levers we pull in our own lives to get the things that we want, levers like money and power, intelligence, education, ambition, hard work, discipline, morality, good looks. These are the things that we, we, the, the levers we pull, the tools that we go to to get the things that we want to overcome the obstacles we face to advance in the world to win. And we spend most of our lives kind of gathering more and more levers to ourselves. So We try to be more ambitious, more hardworking, more disciplined, get more education, try to be smarter, try to appear smarter than we are, try to get better looking, get in shape, do all these things so that we have as many levers available to us that we can pull to get us the things that we want to overcome whatever we face. And Jesus, in front of a man, Nicodemus, who has as many, I mean, he's got armloads of tools at his command to get him whatever he wants. He has massive amounts of influence, massive amounts of power, is smart, ambitious, hardworking. He's got all of it. And Jesus says to him, none of it matters when it comes to the kingdom of God. None of it. There isn't a lever you can pull that will allow you to see the kingdom, let alone enter the kingdom. So Nicodemus, walking into this room, assuming all of those things, is therefore challenged by Jesus here in this moment to say, all the things that are flesh, that's flesh. That will earn you a lot. All of us are are, are testimony to the reality of when we pull levers of intelligence and hard work and ambition, all these things in our lives, it gets us places. But when we finally come before God, it gets us nothing. And Jesus facing Nicodemus says exactly that. And I love what Jesus says next verse 7. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Which makes me think that Nicodemus had a look on his face. Right? Like Jesus lays all this out about the flesh is the flesh and the spirit of the spirit. And I just picture Nicodemus being like, huh? He goes, do not marvel that I said to you, you have to be born again. Don't you understand He says, the wind blows, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, again, this is our third word play here, and you probably see a little notation in your Bible that the same word for wind is the Greek word for spirit. It's pneuma. It means the same thing. And so Jesus plays with that word a little bit and says, the spirit is like the wind. We don't know where it's coming from. We don't know where it goes, but we can see its effects. We can hear the noise in the trees. We can see the leaves blown by. We can feel the cold wind pressed against our face. My office is right next to one of the Franz bakeries, or as my wife calls it, Franz. She's fancy. And every time I walk out of my office, I smell pie and other baked goods that are just temptation from Satan um, blown directly into my face. So I can't see pies on the wind, but I know that they're there. <laughs> right? I can experience the effects of the wind in my heart as I am tempted to drive there or run or whatever I have to do to get there. So we know that the wind blows wherever it wishes. It has a sense of of sovereignty to it in the sense that the wind goes where it will. We don't have control over it. We can't make the wind do what we want it to do. The wind goes where it goes. It comes from where it comes from. It goes wherever it's going. And I don't know where. Certainly Nicodemus didn't know where. But here's the key piece. Jesus says, So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And I want us to hear this the way Nicodemus would have heard it. Because for those of you who have grown up in the Christian church, you have heard probably over and over and over throughout your life that we are saved by grace through faith. This is the the, the great truth of the gospel in Ephesians 2, that we're saved by grace through faith, that it's not works, that there's nothing we can do to accomplish this salvation in us. But I want you to hear Jesus going even a step further than that. But more importantly, I want you to hear it the way Nicodemus would have heard it, because he has lived in a world where there are levers to pull, levers of sacrifices, Levers of offerings to make that would earn you certain right relationship with God. And Jesus going, all that's done. You have to be born again. You have to be born of the Spirit. And in fact, you have no control over what the Spirit does. You have no levers to pull to be born again. And as we'll see here in a moment, even belief is not a lever we have to pull. Now, let's let's stop here for a minute and, and summarize. Let's zoom out on what we have just heard before we go further to this last section. First, a wealthy, powerful, accomplished, ambitious, smart, seriously holy guy comes to Jesus professing some kind of belief. Jesus responds by flipping the script on him, tells him he has to be born again or born from above in order to see, let alone enter the kingdom of God. Then, he says, that to be born again means to be born of water and spirit, to be cleansed and filled with the spirit. Then, that that spirit sovereignly does what it wants, and we can only see its effects. And that this applies to those who are born again specifically, that we have no control. It's not our move that instigates it. Now, this is not the first time John has said this even in this gospel, In John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, he says this, He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, we may read that and go, oh, see, who believed in his name. Those who believed in Jesus, he gave the right. That's the lever we can pull is belief, but not so fast. He says that he gave them the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, so it's not, not about your mama and your daddy, nor of the will of the flesh, meaning it's not welling up within us that our flesh desires this. It's not coming from inside of us, nor the will of man, so it doesn't come out of our own desire, our own decision, our own discipline, our own will, but of God. He'll say something similar again in chapter 6, verses 63 to 65. He says, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It's the spirit that gives life and that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Paul, in Ephesians 2, says basically the same thing in his own way. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. Not but you. Not but discipline. Not but hard work. Not but holiness, not even but belief, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, he's going to say, so that, meaning he did, this is the way Jesus did this. This is the way God, this is the reason why God made us alive says so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith hear this for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing even the faith is not your own doing it is a gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast. And we go, yeah, yeah, I get this. It's not our holiness. It's not our discipline. It's not our, our moral things. So you go, but listen, if it were up to your faith, you would boast in that. So Jesus goes, I'm going to take away everything. Even the one lever that you think you have, which is your choice to believe. I'm going to take that lever away. I'm just going to tell you, I will give you faith. I will give you that lever, but it's not yours. It doesn't come from within you. It has to be a gift from me given to you. Otherwise, you would cling to it and you would make it your precious. And it would be the thing that you say was your role and your responsibility. And you get credit for that thing, that really, really good choice. Because see, dead people don't make good choices, let alone the good choice to choose life. See, this makes perfect sense, as uncomfortable as it might also make us. Do you remember a moment when you decided to believe? Or did something move in you, creating belief? Did something become all of a sudden so apparent and so true that there was no other choice but to believe? We don't conjure belief, but we do act on it. That's our part, right? Like we finally do have a part. After God has given us the lever of belief, this gift from him to pull, to respond to, we act on the belief given to us, created in us. We live the life that we've been given. One commentator used Lazarus as an example. Lazarus was dead and was made alive. It was nothing about Lazarus that made him alive, but once he Jesus reanimated his cells and said, Lazarus, come forward. It was Lazarus who stood and walked out of the tomb. That was Lazarus' part. Once he was made alive, it was his to stand and to walk and to respond to the life that he had been given. So what does this all mean? It means that when it comes to Jesus, to God, to faith, to eternal life, to being born again, you've got nothing. You've got nothing. You've got no lever to pull. And I'm telling you, that's good news. That's good news because if you're pulling levers, you are only as secure as your levers are effective. Which means this. Everything in your life that you have gained by pulling the levers of hard work and determination and education and intelligence and all of the things that you do, all of your success, all of your wins in that world are dependent upon the continued effectiveness of the lever you pulled. You got your job by hard work and discipline. You will only keep your job by hard work and discipline. It is conditional. Upon you continuing to do the job that you did to get the job in the first place, unless you're a teacher who's gotten tenure, in which case, I tip my hat to you. (laughs) Otherwise, it will take what got you there to keep you there. And so here's why this is good news for us when it comes to our our eternal life, our born-againness. is because if there were any lever that we had to pull in order to earn the born-againness, we would have to continually, effectively pull that lever to maintain the born-againness we just earned. And man, there is a fragility to that, there is a burden to that that would be absolutely exhausting to us. There would be a conditionality to that that we could never maintain. So Nicodemus walks into Jesus here in verse 1 with this armload of levers he has to pull, walks into Jesus and goes, Here I am, man. You know me. I'm part of the Sanhedrin. I'm powerful. I'm smart, I'm ambitious, I'm hardworking, and I got all the things going for me, and here I am, and I'm gonna tell you how great I think you are. Verse nine, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, there it is again, listen up, this is important, Nicodemus. We speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He goes, Nicodemus, you don't understand the wind. How are you going to understand the spirit? Right? And, and certainly during this, this time, like Nicodemus had no understanding of the way wind works, even the way we now understand the way wind works. And by we, I mean scientists, because I have no idea. I still know about as much as Nicodemus knows about the wind and all of that. I know the bread. But that's about it. Right? And he goes, listen, if you can't even understand the wind, how will you understand the spirit? If you can't understand what it means to be born again, what hope do you have? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, that's a reference to a story in Exodus, and we're actually going to get into that in great detail next week. But here's the idea, that in in the wilderness, that the people of Israel were attacked by snakes and God told Moses, grab one of the snakes, put it on a stake, hold it up in the air, and everyone who looks upon the snake will be saved from the other snakes. It's a weird story. That's kind of what the Bible does, is it gives us weird stories. And and we'll look into it in more detail next week. But here's what Jesus is saying, and Nicodemus would have understood it because he's got the Bible basically memorized. He goes, listen, look at the sun. Look at me. See me. Because we, we can only talk about what we know, and we can only bear witness to what we've seen. And there's only one person who's been to heaven, in fact, is from heaven, and is now here with you, and that's me. So look at me, come to me, be in my presence. Nicodemus wants Jesus to fit into his world. You notice that even though Nicodemus came to Jesus, he only came to him in such a way as that he wouldn't lose anything. He came to him only under a situation where his world would be preserved, where no one would know, no one would see, and he can come to Jesus hoping to add another lever to his collection he says i mean just the language that nicodemus uses he goes rabbi rabbi you are a teacher come from god which is another way for nicodemus to simply say hey rabbi we know you're one of us you're one of the good guys Nicodemus is is, is trying to bring Jesus into his world he is bringing all of his levers that he can pull all of his privilege all of his power coming to Jesus and going don't you want to be a part of this and Jesus goes don't you know how naked you actually are don't you see how powerless all those things are in my presence Don't you see how all of those things are of the flesh and I am of the spirit? Don't you see that you have to be born again and none of the things that you have can ever make you be born again? Jesus challenges Nicodemus and he challenges us. He challenges our knowledge and our intelligence, he challenges our power and our accomplishment. He challenges us to take a long, hard look at all of the things we think are sources of power for us. The the tools that we wield to make our way in the world. And he asks us to look at them hard and say, of what real value are they? When you stand in my presence, what can they accomplish for you? So I want us to do three things in response to this passage, first, ask yourself a hard question. Am I born again? It's a hard question to ask, but I would, I would caution you that the church is a really easy place to hide. It's super easy to hide behind morality and habit in church. It's super easy to pick up the language. It's super easy to enter into the rhythms of what we do here and to kind of pawn yourself off as a Christian when you know, or maybe you don't know, that in fact that God has not made you born again. So I would ask yourself that question, and you might ask me, how would I know? Well, we see in this passage a couple things that Jesus tells us that if we're born again, then we can see the kingdom of God meaning that, that our, our kind of default perception of the world would be through the lens of the kingdom of God, that we would see God at work in the world around us, that we would see people as image bearers of God, deeply broken and in need of grace, but for whom Christ died, that that would be our natural posture and orientation towards the world, that we would see everything around us through the lens of the kingdom of God. It tells us that uh, we will believe in Christ as a result of this new birth. That that belief might be long-lasting, solid, and unwavering. Not that we wouldn't have questions. Man, we've got so many questions and we need to ask all of our questions, but there's a difference between asking questions so that we might better understand the Savior that we believe in and love and the Lord that we follow and asking fundamental questions about belief. And if we have more, more of one than the other, we may not be born again. Ask yourself, do I experience the effects of the Holy Spirit, which are primarily conviction about sin, not condemnation, but conviction. And the difference is that the Holy Spirit points out our sin to demonstrate for us our great need for Christ and then always points us to grace. Lastly, do I feel secure and confident that I will enter the kingdom of God? Obviously, we cannot know. We cannot know for sure. We cannot have guarantees. But do we have a deep sense of assurance and confidence that Christ is in us and our lives are hidden in him? Number two, pay attention to the levers that you pull in your life. What are they? What do I pull when I need something or have an obstacle to overcome? What has God given me ultimately to steward? And is that how I'm using them, to steward them for the sake of God's kingdom? And lastly, number three, lay down your levers when you come to Jesus in prayer, in worship, at church, on a daily basis that we would be quick to lay those things down because they live with us mostly as burdens and weakness because we are tempted to cling to things that are far less powerful than God. That when we face challenge or obstacle or some need in our life, we are quick to pull the levers of our own power and slow to lean on the power of God. And so what seems like our great strength ends up being our greatest weakness. So that we would learn to lay down our levers when we come to Jesus, because at the end of the day, he doesn't care. He doesn't care what you've accomplished. He doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't care what level of education you have or where you went to school or where you work now or what your title is or what pay grade, it just doesn't matter. Not, not when it comes to him and you, it just doesn't matter. So we come to him naked, we come to him in need, we come to him desperate for a new birth, we come to him desperate for literally everything that we need, that is the only posture that we have is the only thing we have to bring to him is our nothingness. That's what he responds to. All right, let's do a couple quick questions. Question one super fast clarification question. The wordplay described in John comes from Greek, or at least the spirit wind wordplay, and I would, all three of them do. Would this have been the language spoken between Jesus and Nicodemus? No. That's, that's a great question and uh, something that I would love to spend more than just a quick clarification question on uh, because uh, John writing in the Greek would have been taking uh, that account of that story and translating it uh, and telling a story uh, for his readers to hear. So uh, if you ask that question and want to talk more, I'd love to because you get me into the biblical languages and man, we go crazy. All right, <laughs> question two uh what is the benefit of asking ourselves or worrying about if we are born again if quote the spirit blows where it will great question one because everything depends on that everything depends on that whether or not you are born again so there is nothing more worth worrying about than that two Because if you spend your whole life in church and are never born again, you are wasting your time because I'm not that interesting and this is not that fun. Okay. Three, that the desire we have in us to be with Christ, to be born again is one, probably a suggestion that you are born again, that that desire, that that care, that that angst is in you. Now, if you are asking the question, just try try to catch me in some sort of logic loop, sorry, uh, not gonna work. Um, Here's the deal. We can uh, can have what I'll just for this moment call pre-faith in the sense that we can go, okay, that makes sense. We can see something in front of us, see the offer of the gospel and go, okay, I can see at an intellectual level or a, a mental cognitive level, that makes some sense. I don't really feel like going to hell. That sounds warm. And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, I want this, right? But there's actually no internal desire for it. So we can see the logic of the thing or the, a, a, we can understand the desire without having the desire and we can go, okay, yeah, I want that. I want that desire, in which case I would say, pray. Pray that God would make you alive. If that desire is in you, like for instance, every time I sit down at a restaurant, I know I should order a salad, but I have no desire to. But the more I do, the more likely I am to see the good and all of that. Now, add Holy Spirit, which never shows up in that moment for me, but like that's, that's the key piece of all this, right? That the Spirit would make us alive can come from a desire and a prayer a, a, that we ask the Spirit to do that, right? So there is this wonderful, and we, we didn't have time to get into it tonight, but there's this wonderful overlap of God at this, in in, in, a, in a moment of great mystery gives us faith in which that at that very moment we act on that faith. And so there's this interplay between our desire and God's work and all of that that matters a great deal. So... Pray that the Spirit would blow where it will in your heart. Number three, my faith has never wavered. My belief in the gospel and Jesus Christ is always there and strong. My identity and worth comes from my faith. What if I don't feel convicted about certain sins, though? Does that say anything about my faith? Yes, it does say something. Maybe not about your faith, but about the work of the Spirit in you. The, the The job of the spirit is to bring to our hearts conviction about sin that's that's one of the primary jobs of the spirit and the spirit does that on on the spirit's timetable and in his ways and it's again he the spirit comes when it comes and goes when it goes and does what it does and we don't have control over that so If you know that there are sins in your life that you just don't feel some kind of existential sense of conviction about, that ought not stop you from not doing the sins, right? So there's this kind of an interesting kind of like cognitive dissonance happening there where we go, well, I know it's sin, but I don't feel convicted about it, so... So what? So what? We just keep doing it anyway until we sense this existential conviction kind of thing happening. Uh, that's, that's, that doesn't make a lot of sense. What it probably means is that as you grow in your faith, as God reveals more and more, the Spirit moves more and more and more in your life, that, that the Spirit will reveal different places of brokenness and different types of brokenness and different, at different times. This is... This is just the reality of how life works. That at times the Spirit opens our eyes and hearts to things that we've never seen before. And often, at kind of an ever deepening, level, right? I I talked about this uh, last week in my sermon that um, I I see things that I do or things that I say, and I used to be convicted about those things, and now the Spirit is increasingly convicting me about the sin beneath that, the desire beneath that, the desire beneath that, so that I can say, as I did last week, that I confess to you guys, like, I desire to be worshiped. I desire to get affirmation. I desire to be loved. I desire these things in a way that causes me to say and do all these things. And that's a recent move of the spirit in me, okay? So the spirit's doing what the spirit does at different times and in various ways. I would say if you are cognitive of the fact or cognizant of the fact that some activity is sin and ultimately destructive for you, don't. (laughs) Don't do that. And don't allow it into your life simply because you don't feel that existential sense of conviction. Thanks for listening. For more information and podcast episodes, head to iconchurch.org.